O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness, I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my hope. Over Philistia I will triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi to talk about the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Zelwyn, how are you? I'm doing well, Willie. Things are generally hot up here right now. We're still in the midst of the drought and everything. We have been getting a little bit more rain than usual, but again, things are just, it's kind of a rough year. I don't know what it's like out your way. We are actually getting plenty of rain, although it's very hot. It actually has cooled down a little bit, but yeah, we have been blessed with rain, as the kids would say. <laughs> and so, yeah, no no complaining there, although, yeah, we really need to be praying for folks out west. Don't make Zellin resort to doing a rain dance, folks. We want you to to actually pray for those people out there. Because you know what, Zellin? You know what? When you pray for stuff, God answers. It's It's amazing. I mean, we, we've had prayer services for rain, and then it rained like either before we had it or while it was happening. So, you know, God does answer prayer. Right. And you see examples of this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in the life of the church. In fact, you, you might be surprised to know that the Old Testament is not just a book where you can use lurid illustrations to try to sound more gospelly for your for your blog. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that. Um, but that's one of the things that we uh, that we hope to uh, you know to fix here on Word Fitly Spoken. Just remind you that uh, the God of history is in the Bible doing things with real people. Well, it should say something about how much we appreciate the Old Testament when our show is named you know from the Old Testament. So <laughs> it's it's a good thing to have. We should we should spend some time in that part of the Bible and not just in you know the Gospels the way that some do. But we uh, we want to talk today a little bit about what you said is the victory of Christ. And what do you mean by that, Willie? Where, where are we going with this? Well, where we're going with this is really quite simple. Um, you know, we hear from a lot of, of listeners and things. We talk with, with people out there. I mean, maybe even parishioners for some of you. People are very concerned with the state of the world. They're very concerned with what's going to happen. Now, what will they lose? What will they, they be asked to give up? What sort of pressure will be put upon them, what sort of persecution, for lack of a better word, what sort of loss they might suffer for the sake of Christ. And often it's not a selfish question. They wonder what's going to happen with their children, what's going to happen with their churches and with their communities. Um, as the people uh, of Christ, as Christ's true church, uh, the Israel of God is, is suffering 
at the very least, we can all agree it's suffering being pushed to the margins of society as that's happened. And as Christians are being forced to hide their beliefs, hide their opinion, things like that. And, you know, what, what's that going to, to look like for them when they do have to give an account for what they believe, a defense for what they believe? And it's causing a lot of people to despair, causing a lot of people to worry. And they, and they, they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel because they're always, we'll say, looking downward, right? Or, or perhaps they've been taught that pessimism is a virtue. Now, I think pessimism can be very wise, of course, but in the end, Jesus Christ is returning to vindicate his people. The martyrs under the altar in Revelation cry out, how long? And that is not a prayer that goes unanswered. And so every enemy of the church will be put underfoot, and every person with true faith in Christ will be vindicated at his second coming. And so we're going to talk about Christ conquering. We're going to see Christ in the Old Testament conquering. We're going to see Christ in the New Testament. And then we're ultimately going to see that last and great conquering, the bringing all things under his feet, the joining of the new heaven and the new earth together. We are not defeatist. We might not be post-millennials because, you know, <laughs> World War I ended that, but but we are not defeatist. And if And if we become too pessimistic, that's what happens. Or a common Lutheran attitude, Zelwyn, is, well, what can you do? Or they make the faith entirely passive to the point of they have no action. And so they're like, well, the gospel still remains even if, you know, the government or the world or even denominations are embracing every form of anti-biblical thought and action. Right? Right. And I got news for you. The gospel really doesn't. It actually is driven underground and not preached when you allow this to happen, you mooks. So come on. <laughs> you know better than that. And I know what they're saying. It's It's a cope. It's a cope. It's a cope to say, well, there's nothing we can do. So even when it's bad, the Holy Spirit's still working. And of course, that's true. But that doesn't mean you sit back and allow someone to slaughter the flock you right. know, for the right. sake of the gospel. Very bizarre, very bizarre thing. We want to uh, remind people that Christ wins. At the same time, also to be brave, uh, to be bold. So don't shrink back from what you believe and don't shrink back from what you confess. Uh, live a Christian life openly. And hey, build Christian communities. That can happen too uh, because Christ is going to win. And because Christ wins ultimately, you'll find that you can taste some temporal victory even on this earth as a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Well, something that's worth remembering here too is that when you think of the earliest days of the church when they were undergoing like literal, you know, severe persecutions, they didn't say, oh, well, I guess that's just the way that the world is. You know, I guess everything's going downhill because there's nothing we can really do about it. No, they, they went out and preached all the more. They were all the more bold to, to proclaim their beliefs and to, pro yeah. to proclaim the gospel so that the church grew even in the midst of persecution. You know, sometimes that you hear that said, too, where people will say, you know, the, the blood of the martyrs is is the, the what? The water, seed, the, the, seed the seed of the church. Of, seed of the church, yeah. Yeah, I, however the expression goes. But sometimes that's also kind of given as kind of a cope. Like, yeah, we're dying, but God will somehow pull us through. But really what we should see in this is, like you say, the absolute utter victory of the gospel over all, over all things and that Jesus Christ is the one who will be the victor on the last day. Right. Yeah, and that's not to, of course, take away the kind of the, the beauty of that saying it is true, but yeah, as you say, it can just be used as a as a slogan to avoid. Um, and, and also, speaking very frankly, stepping on some toes here, I'm sure, but my gospel is a passing shower. Yep. That's the cope of the age. 
the gospel is being taken away from America because it's a passing shower, please. No, the gospel is being taken away because you haven't preached it. And that's kind of probably ultimately Luther's point, right? <laughs> that that if you ignore the gospel, it passes. Sure. But now now it's just being used as well. It just it passes. So what, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to get out there and you're going to seed the clouds, my friend. Okay. <laughs> you're going to get, get out your, there and do do some work. Get in your plane. Get out there. Seed the clouds. And make it happen. And make, make it, it rain. happen. Yeah. Good grief. <laughs> and it, and it's easy to talk like this while we still can. Although we have been shadow banned from Google. So I guess we're tasting a little bit of this, right? <laughs> uh, from Google Podcasts. If you can't find us, we don't know exactly what's going on, but... It, it conveniently happened after the critical theory episode. <laughs> conveniently. Yeah, there, exactly. There's a lot of coincidences, you know? <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, so we want to talk about Christ as Victor. So people are doubting. Okay. So people are worrying. That's one thing, but for a lot of people, worry may lead to doubt. I'm, I'm not seeing the church be victorious. I'm seeing many people fall away. Does that mean that the gospel is not true? And I think people, some people do have that attitude. Some people become jaded like that. And we want to be careful not to romanticize that sort of thing and not to overly romanticize the dark night of the soul either. We've turned that kind of thinking as this, this lie that the Christian is always doubting into a kind of, uh, what do you want to say? Kind of like a rebel without a cause, romanticized sort of image. Right. And so. Right. And what and they go, well, what you need to do is just remind them of the gospel. Yeah, okay, the gospel that you're reminding them of, of is exactly what they're doubting here. So right. let's let's turn around and show them where Christ does win and show them uh, the promises of, of your future vindication. Because sometimes when you use the gospel too narrowly, you're going to someone who's worried about, who's doubting the second coming, and you're going to them going, hey, you know you're baptized, right? <laughs> hey, you know, you know it's a justification, right? Okay, okay, that's good. But remind them of the vindication, right? Remind them of the coming judgment sometimes if you can. Remind them that Jesus comes with a with a sword issuing from his mouth. Um, yeah. Remind them, too, of, as we'll see in the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Hebrews who grumbled and who, who began to doubt that God would vindicate them. And for some, that led to their judgment. You know, some got bitten by snakes. And some, <laughs> the earth swallowed up and, and, and various and sundry things happened. But you have these psalms, you know, calling out to God, asking for him to deliver them. And guess what? God often does. Right. right. And, of course, when they begin to doubt too much, though, ultimately God will write them off, as, as in the case of uh, the destruction of the temple, too. So that, that will also happen. So be, be careful not to cast your doubt. Don't let your doubt destroy your faith. And don't let people romanticize doubt. Well, can't you be like Job? Job doubted. Job questioned. Eh, that's a bit of a stretch. Job asked the foolish question and got a very direct answer. Let's not treat doubt as if it's a virtue. And when people are struggling with it, let's help them through the word to overcome that doubt. Well, you mentioned with the Old Testament, although we'll get into some specifics here. But I remember preaching this past Sunday when I was preaching on Micah, because I'm, I don't know, a heretic for preaching on the Old Testament. I'm not really <laughs> that's sure. That's what they tell me. I was, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but pointing out with Micah, you know, Micah brings a very stern message of judgment upon Israel for their sins. You know, you're doing all of these things. Jerusalem's going to be plowed under and uh -huh. you know, it's going to be completely torn down. But then we hear in the book of Jeremiah that when Israel turned towards God, well, when Hezekiah turned towards God and, you know, called on him, God listened and the judgment did not happen. You know, and this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 26. So 
even in the midst of what seems to be a very difficult situation, even in the midst of what seems to be a kind of no win, there's no way out, I'm not really sure what's going to happen here, there is always hope because God is listening to the cries of his people. You know, is he going to delay long over his elect who cry to him day and night? You know, and it may even be that if we call on him and turn towards him in all of these things, that, you know, there is still a hope even in this present age. We don't have to be completely defeatist and think that it's just all going downhill. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, all right. Well, let's start off with the first thing we really want to talk about here. And just a reminder that if there is going to be any kind of hope for someone, any kind of remedy, it's not going to be in the devices of man and the inventions of man. It's going to be only through what, Zelwyn? Jesus. <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> the you go. The Sunday school answer, right? Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's through Christ. You know, we don't want to look towards princes or the sons of men as the way of finding our hope in this age, which I think sometimes we might get caught up in too. But we should look to the one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is over all of the sons of men, which, of course, is Jesus Christ and him alone. Yeah. So what do we want to do in terms of, you know, bringing that out? Where do we want to go? All right. Well, I think that you're going to, we're going to go really Sunday school here. We're going to go to John 3.16. Are, are you familiar with that one, Zelwyn? I'm not sure. I don't know if I've heard this one before. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should, uh, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So this is one of the clearest, you know, portrayals of the gospel. And he's going to go on in this chapter, right? He continues. You know, he talks about baptism. Um, he talks about, uh, you know, what condemns a man. He also mentions, you know, that God did not send his son of the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might believe. He has this beautiful picture of uh, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, paralleling how the son of man must be lifted up. But you go but all the way down to the end of the chapter. He that believeth in the son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him, if I'm quoting the authorized version correctly there. You have the gospel promise about believing on the Son and an explicit affirmation that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Right. Well, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people want to stop at John 3.16, which is still, it's a beautiful verse. There's nothing, you know, it's, it's something we should quote, that we should memorize, teach our children, all those kinds of things and something that we should hold on to even in the midst of everything. But it's not the only verse here. And when you do bring out those other things, like at the end of the chapter, which you quoted, it shows the fuller picture here is that, you know, the uh, Christ alone, first of all, means that it is in him and in him alone that we will find hope, that we will find salvation, which I believe is your point here, right? Well, yeah, it's that salvation is only found in him. So if there's going to be any comfort, it must ultimately come from Christ and nowhere else. There are going to be people that are going to look toward drugs, for example, for two things. One, for temporal, for temporary removal of anxieties, but then another kind of medicine to prolong the life um, or even to delay death inevitably. Or excuse me, sorry, folks, in <laughs> indefinitely. Right. To delay death indefinitely. And so with that... You have people using every kind of scheme they can to cheat the consequences of sin, which is death, and to make this world, which is perishing, last a bit longer. You have 1 Corinthians 15, for example. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you 
the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen over by five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain in the present, but some has fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then all the apostles, then last he was seen by me as one born out of time. All right, so... And it's going to go on and talk about holding fast to this truth, to this gospel that was preached, this gospel that we can attest. Then on into uh, on into the rest of the chapter that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our hope is in vain. Right? right. Um, talking about our glorious body, victory over death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is thy victory? For example, all of this glorious hope that He is giving it. Right. Thanks mm-hmm. be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 56. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that the truth of who Christ is and the reality of the hope of the resurrection should strengthen them. They should be assured of the victory that they will have and that Christ has and will have. Yeah, I I think that's actually very telling here what Paul is doing because he you know he gets through this huge section in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection from the dead which is something that you know we always hear at funerals and stuff like that which we should you know it does it gives us a hope for the future right. but the way that he applies all of that yes. at the very end of the chapter which you just read is that that gives us hope right now that we can face all of these things that we are suffering, that we can face all of these things that we are going through, that we can face all of these things in confidence, knowing that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead and we shall rise with him too. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically saying, you know, all of these things going on right now, you don't need to be afraid of them because Jesus has overcome all things and you're going to overcome them too. Absolutely. So you you have your hope, you have your hope in Christ alone. I mean, Acts 4.12, right? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none, no, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You have Romans 10 talking about the necessity of preaching the gospel because there's no salvation apart from hearing the gospel. So much for hope for the pygmy in the cave. <laughs> so you have a necessity to preach it in times of, Lack and in times of plenty, the gospel must be preached because that gospel must be preached for people to hear. And when we talk about Romans 10, when people accuse us of doing the, uh, this is an old LCMS meme uh, from, from way back in the long, long ago, accuse us of snapping our fingers. You right. know, every time I snap my fingers, there's a soul going to hell or, or however the saying goes. And that's not <laughs> quite what we're saying here. Okay, but we are showing you from the scriptures these three things. One, hope is found in Christ alone. Why? Salvation is found in none other than Christ, and according to Romans, they can't call on, they can't believe in whom they have not heard, right? And and they can't call on this name without a preacher, right? So yeah. you must preach the gospel. It is the life of the world. It is the hope of the world. Yeah, the gospel is not this. How do you want? And don't misunderstand me when I say this. It's not this nebulous thing out there that's kind of 
converting people while we are over here doing our own thing. The gospel is something which must be proclaimed, which God has given to us to proclaim as the means of calling his elect to himself. So, I mean, yes. yeah, we, we want to get out there. We want to preach in accordance with what is being with what God tells us, because that is our mission. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all right. We're at our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about Christ, our victor, Christ victorious. Now, uh, the first thing we want to point out, we should have pointed this out long ago, is that this is not a discussion of the Christus Victor theory of the atonement. I know when people see the title, they're going to think that's what we're doing. That's not really our our thing uh, to talk about that in this episode. So <laughs> we're talking about the, the victory, victory of Christ over his enemies. In a, in a much more broad way. Maybe we should do an episode on the theories of the atonement and then have record low downloads. I don't know. Yeah, because <laughs> everybody does that one. Right. Well, it, it wasn't until... So when I first became Lutheran, it's kind of funny. I, I was watching these these videos where guys are like, well, Lutherans don't really uh, subscribe to one theory of the atonement. I'm like, I don't know about that. And then, <laughs> you know, they try to mush them all together. And then I realized that these are just kind of like ortho bros. <laughs> not not wanting to go all Anselmic, and so you can you gotta you gotta watch it, kids. Got to be careful out there. And so, yeah. Uh, anyway, don't want to get don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, Zelwyn, let's talk a little bit about Christ's victory in the Old Testament. Some of these temporal victories that we see. Sure. Well, I mean, the the Old Testament is full of these kinds of victories over enemies, even even like in history kind of thing. This isn't just a a promise of some generic, you know, worldwide thing, which which we will have too, but actual specific situations where God was victorious. And I think maybe the first one that we want to look at, uh, which we have here, would be like in First Chronicles 29, uh, verse 11. Uh, this is David, and he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, o, o Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And so David is praying here, of course, and this is, if I'm not mistaken, towards the end of his life, because Solomon's just about to become king, right, Willie? Yeah. Okay. So this would be 
after all of his victories over the, the Philistines, after over his, all of his victories over his other enemies, and uh, God, you know, David is now seeing the peace which God has worked through him, and he is giving thanks to the Lord for all that is, is being done because he's handing to his son a kingdom at peace, a kingdom without war, you know, a kingdom which he will have time to be able to build the temple. And uh, he can give thanks for that to God. So, yeah, we see absolutely here the the absolute majesty of the Lord. You know, everything belongs to him. The kingdom is his, even if uh, even the kingdom that's being handed over to his son. And he is the, the head over all things so that we can glorify him in all that that he has done and all that he has said. Right. You know, I think and we'll look at some more examples here in a minute. A lot of people are going to see this and go, yeah, that's fine for the Bible. That's fine for Bible times, but, you know, God doesn't really work like that in history now. I don't know about that. <laughs> right. We we need to stop being functional deists. Part of the reason you despair is because you believe that God is afar off. Sure, yeah. You, you know, um, and you don't intentionally believe that, but but you've been taught this by people, and they didn't realize they were teaching it. When they say, well, and it's usually in the negative examples. But just but just to remind you that every positive example, like where the Hebrews are rescued, meant judgment on the pagan nations, usually. Right. So somebody's right. going down. And and it's so strange. They'll look at signs in the heavens today, which the Bible actually mentions are signs of judgment uh, and coming. <laughs> and they'll go, well, God doesn't really work that way. Well, how could you say God did that? And the reason why is they're going to say, well, you know, the gospel, something like that. But the real reason Zelwyn, is that they're afraid to admit that the God of the Bible is outside of the Bible and still working in history. Sure, yeah. Because because they get this idea that at the last dot put on Revelation, he just stopped. Right. So they're fine with him working in baptism. They're fine with him working uh, th- in the Lord's Supper. They're fine with him working through those means, and, and it's kind of a vague notion of the word you know, hopefully through preaching, but whatever. But they're not comfortable with God working through their weather or earthquakes or in the rising and falling of nations. And so they'll never come out and say that God wound up the universe and left it at a certain point, but they really portray God as taking his ball and going home after about 80, 70, 80, 90, depending (laughs) on where you date the one book. And, And the early church was better about this because they did see God, God working. And really up through the Reformation, we were good about this. It might be a bit of a cliche, but I I do think that there is some enlightenment thinking that has creeped in. And that's sort of the academic answer, right? People people embraced enlightenment ideas about God. Well, the, the, the truth is they're scared of God. It's a servile fear. They're scared of the idea that Jehovah God Almighty is out there and he is provident and he is sovereign and he is ruling you know and i and i I got news for you that god you're reading about in the old testament is jesus christ right okay and and he is real and he is still working in creation uh, to do things and for those who are enemies of god that's a terrifying thing but for you who are christians you should welcome this because that is your comfort you know what in drought zone that is your comfort that the lord is going to work good through this and that he is trying to teach something through this and and I you know uh, plagues even questions of that certain diseases that assert, that affect only certain people in large numbers. And what is that? We have we have rationalized this away to take God out of it, 
And the our critics will say, well, how could you know the mind of God? Like, I don't know the mind of God, but I know what God has done in, in the scripture. And I know evidence of God's judgment and God's blessing upon a nation and upon a people. And there is no scriptural evidence that this is somehow magically stopped. You can't say there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, and use that as an excuse to say that God is not active in the nations in a negative or positive way. Everybody wants to say, God bless America. Everybody wants America to bless God, but they're really not comfortable with him judging America or judging <laughs> any nation. And I'm not saying yes or no that America is uh, being handed over to judgment, but I do know that the Gentiles in ancient times were handed over to judgment by the darkening of their minds. Right. So I'll just leave that at that. <laughs> <laughs> just just drop the ball right there. <laughs> well, I mean, it really comes down to... People not, I mean, people saying things like God is, you know, God sets up government, though, you know, Romans 13 it all day. But then when it comes to something like, I mean, take, for example, Constantine at the Milvian Bridge, you know, and God yeah, actually yeah. intervening in his, history that way. You know, they say, ah, well, I don't know about that, you know, or, you know, I don't know if God really did something like, you know, actually raises up rulers or brings them down. You know, that's the voter process that's going on there. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> I, so, it, yeah, it is this hesitancy to see God as the one who is actually lifting up, you know, and ruling the nations as the one before whom all kings will bow. The one who, if a nation will not listen to him, will also bring that nation down. Yeah, but that was just for Bible times. See, God, God is uh, God likes the uh, the Articles of Confederation, and that's what He established. And then you know, America improved upon His will by by drafting the Constitution Bill of Rights. Right, so He can't violate that. And, and then bringing bringing all the other amendments along with it too. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, because those are fully in accord with Scripture. Now we're really going to get letters. Now we're really going to get letters. But. This is, but see, this is why prophets are not welcome, and this is why they want to destroy them because they're going to come and go. You're not thinking right, right? Okay, and you're living, even though you profess to live for God, you're living as if He isn't real. And I don't think that people are doing this intentionally, in in large part. They've been taught a borderline hedonistic Christianity, and they've been taught a form of law gospel that is just so dichotomized their faith that they cannot conceive of a God who isn't a by by, by part something. Right, as sure. if he's some kind of schizophrenic, or, or they're almost dualists, frankly. Sure, all sure. it's borderline dualism to to deny to say there's a like a, almost like a law god and a gospel god. It's it's bizarre, or just this radical change in God to where he's just flip flopping back and forth between personalities. It's not the case. God is gracious and loving and merciful. Okay, and we do we want to get into the end of the commandments because people really aren't going to like that. What the promise attached to that is? <laughs> well, I mean. And something to bring up here, too, is that, you know, you'll see this happen with the way that we treat the Old Testament, even to the New Testament. We'll say that, you know, God acted one way in the Old Testament, but that's, you know, just Old Testament ways of thinking. Um, but now we're in the New Testament when Jesus right. came along and changed everything. But it's like, yeah, I know. I mean, isn't that his whole point in the Sermon on the Mount to say that, you know, you've you've misunderstood the whole point here all along? Right. Or, you know, I, the Lord, do not change. Oh, but no, he totally changed. <laughs> like it's, it's, yeah, but people don't realize what they're doing. And they're really just scared of, or worried, I should say. People are offended by the term scared. They're, they're worried when they see, when they ponder what it means for God to be working in such a way. Sure. 
But what we're saying is, yes, if you're an enemy of the gospel of, of God, yeah, that, that'd probably make you worry a little bit. But if you're a person of faith, this is good news for you because God is going to rescue you out of whatever comes. And he is going to do it in a number of ways. You are going to have a temporal rescue at times. And sometimes the Lord in his providence is going to leave you to suffer for your good and perhaps for your neighbor's good. We don't know what kind of, of good God is going to work. You know, we sometimes turn that into into a self-help thing, right? God works all things for good for you. Well, Okay, for those who is actually what it says, and right. and so that might look more that might look a bit different than what you think it does. And evil might befall you for the sake of the salvation for your neighbor, for example. But God is still sure. faithful to you, and your rescue is still coming. Jesus Christ wins; the church conquers, and I want to be very clear about that. And we'll get into that in the next segment uh, in the New Testament. But Christ is going going to win, just as God in the Old Testament, same guy. Just as he always wins, there is no defeat. And, and even when God's people uh, begin to fall away from him, he will he will assign them to judgment. But eventually, for the sake of the faithful remnant, he comes along and, and rescues. Well, and I mean, even in very specific ways. And maybe that's something that we really need to emphasize here, too. Because think of like, oh, this isn't on your list here, Willie, but uh, think of like Isaiah 7. When God is coming to Ahaz and is telling him, you know, don't uh, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Basically, he says, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. So he's basically saying, I will deliver you and I will do it in this very specific way. Now, Ahaz doesn't believe him, which is part of the whole uh, part of what goes on when he's talking about Emmanuel here, but we're not getting into that. But the promise that was made to Ahaz and to Israel at that time was a very specific one. I will deliver you from this specific problem, not just in a general, oh, I'm going to eventually, you know, win someday and that'll be the end of it. No, it's no, these kings will not win. And I'm going to give you the proof of that. And I think we need to be, in some sense, that specific about the victory which Christ will have. Sure. Well, um, and here's the thing. I think to embrace the idea of victory, one, you have to love your enemies. Okay, mm-hmm. you have to love your enemies. But at the same time, you also have to be willing to see them conquered and to see them put underfoot. And so... If you if you you need to go to a Bible and, and with all the Psalms in it, and, and you're going to find something like Psalm 137, right? You're going to find a great right. imprecatory Psalm. Well, when you're by the rivers of Babylon, okay, and you're sitting and you're weeping and remembering Zion, and they ask you to sing a song of Zion, and you say, "How can we sing a song of the Lord while we're in a foreign land?" Right? Right. How can we sing the Lord's song we're in a strange land? Uh, more more literally, right? And we all know <laughs> the end of that. Okay. Right. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall be he that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall be he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Now, I chose the most stark example because podcasts are for edgelords. Uh, (laughs) And people, we we recoil at that. And what do we do with a lot of the imprecatory psalms liturgically now, Zolan? Can I just ask that? 
Um, well, let me let me ask it this way: Why do my why do my parishioners here keep asking me why we skip psalms in the, the in the hymnal? In the hymnal, right? Well, the official answer, right, is that there wouldn't be enough room. Uh huh. Okay. It wouldn't sure. fit in a pew rack. So, <laughs> sure, I believe that. Uh-huh. But I, I, you know, I don't believe that we can just that we can negate these psalms by saying uh, a New Testament. Because again, right. Revelation, how long, O Lord? The martyrs are calling out for justice. Sure. And so you don't pray this against like every personal enemy, but that also means you don't have to pray that like you bless some government or whatever that is, or, or some religion that is against the church. Right. So I will not pray, you know, when, when we have an administration, uh, not name of names, but th- that is in power, that is just saying, hey, let's slaughter the innocent. Let's affirm this. Let's force the church to pay for this, that, or the other. You don't have to pray, oh, bless them in their efforts, right? <laughs> you can you can soften it and, and do it in a Christian way and say, bless them with the knowledge to rule after thy good pleasure, which is a way of saying, or grace to rule after thy good pleasure, which is to say, convert them sure. if they're not already. But I'm not, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not praying to bless uh, every action of the government. And, uh, but people are going to now, now we're going to say, well, well, did you say the same thing during the last administration? Yeah, not really. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I'm just saying some policies I have a bigger problem with than others. If you want me to be a hundred percent honest with you, but you don't have to put a, put a party or a name to what I'm saying. You can apply this to any, any government. Okay. Bless the King. But to say bless the king is not to affirm every act, moral action of the king, president, or emperor. Right. Well, and you'd mentioned also like the the recoiling at the language of Psalm 137. Well, yeah. honestly, it's it's right here, even in the New Testament, because like if you go to Revelation 16, uh, which is the the third mm-hmm. bowl being poured out and the waters becoming blood, the angel in charge of the waters says, "Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments." For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So it is very much this, they shed the blood of the, your people, and so you right. are giving them blood to drink. A, a just retribution for their sins. Right. And that's exactly the same idea in Psalm 137. Yeah. They did this to our children, right. so you know we're, do it to them. Right, Exactly. <laughs> Right. And so there you go. So then you can't even take our, our Lord's words about turning the other cheek and twist them into something because they want to take those words and twist them into, you know, uh, eye for an eye is always wrong, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And and so we, we equate personal personal vendettas with the justice of the Lord, and those two are not always the same. Right. And, so, and, and of course, a, a, uh, a cultural personal insult is very different from mass infanticide and persecution of the God's people. Uh, two different things. You can tolerate, you can tolerate a, what do we want to say, a uh, mannerly, an ill-mannered slight. Okay, you can turn the other cheek on that. I don't think uh, mass slaughter you can turn the other cheek on. Yeah, I don't, I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't saying, you know, just kind of roll over and take it. When all of these things are happening, <laughs> right? You know, as if there's just nothing you can do about it. Oh, I guess you know whatever. You know, turn the other cheek. No, yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to name names because uh, you know every time I, th- I always think of something certain popular evangelical reform guys have said about this, and I don't want to go into that right now. <laughs> um, well, I mean, even 
I mean, think of Revelation again. I mean, this is a great book for kind of talking about these things because this is talking about the victory of the church. And over, I know we're kind of New Testament posting now, but that's just the way that this goes. But, you know, even when God will say in chapter 21 that, you know, I'm the new heavens, the new earth, all these things will be for the one who overcomes. But then he goes on in verse 8, which we, you know, don't often read, you know, for the cowardly, the faithless, you know, sexually immoral, all of these things, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, I mean, there is this very clear, this is what is coming for those who are opposed to God. Right. And the victory which God will have will be complete because they these enemies of the church will get exactly what they deserve. Right. And, you know, part of loving your enemies is praying for their conversion, not affirming them in what they do. <laughs> you know, or, or just saying, well, God's not here. So it's what, what, what can you do? What can you do? <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I want to say that it sounds like I'm overstating the case, but the more I talk about it, the more I see out there being taught. I don't think I'm overstating this at all. I think that, that people are really living functionally as if God is just backed off. Sure. Are, are they really, are they really anticipating that trumpet sound and the Lord returning with a shout? Right. Are they really ready for that? And, and even, and even people who that are on a different theological side from us who are talking about the rapture and stuff all the time. Um, one, that ain't going to happen. You're not going to be able to escape what's the bad things that are going to come to the into the world. Okay, you Christ will come again to rescue His church, and you need to hold on to that hope through trial and tribulation. What the rapture does, or at least the premillennial dispensational style rapture—that's the shorthand word for what we're talking about here—they believe we're going to escape all of this, and so they're looking forward to that more than the second coming. They're looking for coming one point. Five, <laughs> and and I think that they're going. They might be caught unawares if they're not careful. Right, right. That. Well, especially yeah, because like you say, it puts your hope in something other than the victorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, saying saying the world is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. There's nothing we can do about it. The church is going to fail. The kingdom is going to fail. But then Jesus will somehow make it all better. I don't think that's the message of the scriptures. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, really, though, you missed out the important part for them. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. But for the worst, worst of it, we're going to get the the jetpack or the uh, the ejector seat's going to go off, and we're going to get out of here for that part. <laughs> and I'm 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 not seeing it. <laughs> Well, all right, we're on, we're on to break number two. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about Christ's victory in the Old Testament, Christ's victory in the New Testament, Christ's victory in history, and how it's all the same God giving the victory. All right, Zellwin, so we talked about the Old Testament, and we started getting into the New Testament uh, last go-round. So let's just continue on through the New Testament. Where should we go? Uh, do you want to dive into, uh, like, First John? Sure. Because I know that there's some important things there, especially within First John chapter 2, uh, verse 14. Yep. Which says uh, that you... I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Yes. Of course, picking something out of First John might be like picking out, you know, one thing among many. But what is it about this verse in particular right. that that we want to focus on? Well, yeah, I mean this, and then the the really famous one from First John five four. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, or just simply our faith. Right. Um, those two things are, are kind of speaking about the same thing, that as Christ has conquered, so too will we conquer. Right. So that the Christian, too, overcomes the world. Now, that's a marvelous thing to think about, because we are often taught what, Zelwyn? That you can't do it. That you're going to lose. That you're going to... Yeah, yeah. That, that because of Massimil, because we are both <laughs> saint and sinner, the sinner is, for whatever reason, so much stronger than the Holy Ghost. <laughs> it's a bizarre take, really. And what they're going to say is, oh, well, you're going to sound like a pietist. Um, and then they will define pietist based upon whoever uh, upset them as a teenager. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> the the pietist for a lot of people is that bully in the locker room. And <laughs> and so the, you know they'll say, well, uh you know you sound just like those methodists who wanted us to to put grape juice in communion or whatever. <laughs> you know. And cuz that makes a pietist and yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about here. You cannot read 1 John <laughs> without the admonition to overcome the world. Right? And how do they do that? This is the victory, our faith. Right, right. And and that refers to the object of our faith, that which we believe in. And, and you know, not merely our personal faith. I don't believe that that's what this is talking about here, although that certainly has a part. You know, you need to have a strong faith. But the point is, what is the victory that overcome with the world? It is Christ. What do we believe in? Christ. Those who are born again, those who believe in Christ, overcome the world. And this is our victory. This is the victory... That over this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Everyone who has been born of the word of God overcomes the world. Right. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Um, and even if you go on, you know, First John five twenty one, he just ends with little children, keep yourself from idols. He doesn't say little children. It's impossible for you to keep yourself from idols. So just sort of sit back there and wait for that to be done, <laughs> or don't sweat it. <laughs> Little children, keep yourself from idols. Same chapter, same same epistle, same book. It's just the, yeah. he just drops the ball right there. I mean, that's that's how it ends. That's how the epistle ends. Well, I mean, and then so much of the rest of First John too. You know, speaking like I'm looking at the end of chapter two, for example. You know, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Um, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And yeah. also that when he appears, we will be like him, 
You know, so all of these things are pointing to a confidence, to a victory, which we have in Christ. Even despite, as he had just been talking about previously in chapter 2, even the despite yeah. of the presence of Antichrist in the world. Right. And First John is, you know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then it goes on to talk about how we don't go on doing this. Right. right? And <laughs> so... Right. You know, right. some people want to select, I mean, you, you, and I hate to keep ping-ponging back between 2 and 5, but 5.14. Now, this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Dangerous would it take out of context. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of them. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say we should pray for that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Whoa, Zellin. But, but, he, but he who has been born keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true Son. This is the true God and eternal life. And so we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but he is faithful to forgive us. And this is what the forgiven life looks like. It is not living in sin. At this point, the equivocator will pop in Zelman and go, just to sow seeds of doubt. And ultimately this episode is about doubt and go, aha, but you don't know who is driving the verbs. To that I say, I've had more Greek than you. <laughs> and, I, and I hate playing that game. I hate when people take take the Greek or the or the Hebrew and try to twist it into something it's clearly not intending to say. Right. And often they'll do that. They, they will take it, and under the guise of the gospel, or even the law, depending upon where you're coming from, and we'll, and we'll go, well, if you only had the decoder ring, you would understand. And this verb actually means this. Okay. Uh, and yeah, uh, have God indeed Oh, yeah. I knew, and I knew another great professor who said, yeah, uh, you will not surely die. <laughs> if, you, if you eat of this fruit. And and so the clear meaning of this text is what? That that the Christian knows he's a sinner and that when he repents, where he looks for forgiveness, forgiveness is found and he overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Right. I I would only throw in there, just as an aside, the only t- the only thing that delving into like Greek or Hebrew or the original languages should be doing, especially in proclamation, is reinforcing the point. It should not yes. be you know yes. turning it into something other than what it obviously says. Right, and, and <laughs> I'm not, and I'm certainly, and I was a joke earlier. I don't actually boast of my Greek ability. We have David Apple, if we want to boast in our Greek <laughs> ability. He is our resident Greek scholar, but I mean, I'd like to think I'm a step. You know, we're all a step above. Opening up the interlinear Bible in class, Zelwyn, did you, and then reading it real uh, slow. So, yeah. so, sometimes, sometimes Greek sounds just like reading the ESV really slow. <laughs> you're 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 letting out secrets that perhaps should not be known. Right. Two favorite things from seminary: reading Greek with a Mexican accent for some reason, and and reading that reading that English translation really slow. Uh, <laughs> That, that never happens, folks. That's just a joke. That's just yeah, a joke. You'll never know what's what's true and what isn't in, in this particular That, that, that case. really always was my favorite, though. We're going to read the Greek, and all of a sudden, I'm going to sound like a Palestinian tour guard for some reason, <laughs> or tour, tour guide for some reason. 
Anyway, um, okay, so back to the point at hand that the victory is Christ and the victory is ours. And I think that some people we have we have kind of left them in their sins. We we've absolved them in a judicial sense, but what pastors sometimes don't realize is, and we kind of make a joke about this, just going up to somebody with questions and saying, Hey, you're baptized, which I've already mentioned that before, or saying, Hey, Jesus died for you. Well, you're you're actually forgetting forgetting the consequences that these people suffer because of their sins. And that needs to be dealt with too. So that you have the sin of drunkenness, right? And you're constantly hung over and it's affecting your work performance and you feel guilty. Well, sometimes absolution isn't going to help that guilt. You know what's going to help that guilt, Zelwyn? Getting them sober. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and showing them that, uh, you know, for some people, this is actually going to work. You know, you as the Bible says, you can put away this sin or, or whatever the sin is. It doesn't have to be just alcohol. It can be, it can be anything. It could literally be any besetting sin. And what does it have to do with the victory of Christ? Well, you, he that believes in Christ overcomes the world. And this is what overcoming the world looks like. It doesn't mean you die and float away. It doesn't mean that overcoming the world is found only when you croak. But that, that there are these little victories that the Christian will sometimes taste. Just like the Israel, the Hebrews in the Old Testament celebrated these brief victories, and sometimes they were generations-long victories. The Christian struggle is akin to that, that God will give these victories too. He's promised to do it. Right. And if we're not careful, just like the people of old, we can we can fall back into those things as well. But to, to leave people in their sins or to treat absolution in, in a trite manner or, or to treat it almost like psychology, like a pat on the back and it's it's here to make you feel better, is not spiritually helpful to some people. Right. I, would, I would say it's maybe not spiritually helpful to anyone. Because there are legitimate, like we always talk about the consequences of, you know, like somebody's always walking around with a burdened conscience. Right. And then we say, okay, well, I'm going to say these words here and he may well feel better. Or I'm going to say the slogan and he may well feel better. Well, often he's not. The person, the Christian, I don't mean the person, I mean a Christian person, a Christian man hates what he is doing insofar as it's sinful. This is the struggle that Paul talks about. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I discipline my body, he says. And of course, it's with an eye toward the eternal consequences of that, but also the temporal consequences of that. I want to be removed from that. And I have lingering guilt because my head is pounding the next morning and I'm dehydrated, right? Or I have lingering guilt from because I'm a serial adulterer. I have lingering guilt because I eat too much. I mean, it can be any sin. And we would just sit there and say, meh, mulligan. The gospel is a big mulligan. <laughs> and you you're defeated and you and you're and you're down and we need to say no that that you will stumble you will absolutely stumble and there is forgiveness when you do but let's also take a look at first what else first john has to say okay <laughs> that you can't have victory over this and if i and if i sound like a pietist or a methodist you're call me what you want but we're not saying anything that the scripture doesn't say and we're honestly not saying anything that the confessions don't say Sure, and that Luther does it. Whatever authority you want to appeal to, you're on the wrong side of Christian history if you say that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. That's in the Bible, <laughs> right? And so, so that's that's us just kind of taking it down to the individual level. Okay, right. so sometimes individual consciences are beset by these things, and they need both that absolution judicially, okay, and also they do need 
for lack of a better term, counseling and motivation and encouragement. Well, I think Romans 12 here. I mean, this is the perfect example of this, right? Paul gets done talking about, you know, in the book of Romans, all these beautiful statements about what it means to be forgiven, about what it means to be made right with God. And then when he finally comes to Romans 12, what does he say? You know, be transformed in the renewal of your minds. Yeah. That this, this victory which we have in Christ means something, not only yeah. far off in the future, but it also means something for me right now. <laughs> That this sin, which I've been struggling with, that I've been fighting against, I can have a victory over that too, you know? Yes, and- yes. <laughs> right. And so, all right. So we've got, we've got, we spent enough time on First John then. So let's, let's broaden this out. You're a Christian. You're in your compound in Idaho. <laughs> all right. Or maybe, maybe you're in a upper middle class suburb in uh you know near milwaukee or someplace right you're in the midwest and i was gonna say down south in a plantation but there are no lutherans down south in a plantation <laughs> yes uh, there's, there's gotta be a few there's gotta there be a couple be. yeah there will be lord <laughs> willing but yeah so guy in combat in idaho obviously he knows what's up he's not worried about what are you worried about hoarding all that stuff he's not worried about anything folks but, <laughs> but no but but for real let's let's take the suburban example they're seeing their neighborhood change. Uh, they're seeing their kids' classmates change in their attitudes, how they view the world. They're seeing their own kids change. Uh, we can point the blame finger here, whoever we want, but what we want to talk about is they're worried. They see the country uh, being turned over to its own desires. Okay, yeah. they're, see- they're seeing leaders and sometimes church leaders encouraging this. Um, a nation in turmoil, uh, a nation that last year was on fire, in some of these cities, uh, you're seeing uh, people being turned against each other in non-gospel ways. Churches embracing these things, really. Everybody pointing the the racism finger. Now it's going to be the transphobe finger. It's going to be all kinds of fingers pointing at, at a lot of people. So you're seeing division, which we know, according to the scripture, not a fruit of the spirit. That kind of division, not not right. referring to separation. Right. right. Uh, that's a different thing. Okay, so you're seeing that. You're seeing biblical marriage already mentioned, you know, not being affirmed. We mentioned a deaffirmation, well, for lack of a better word, of life, okay, embracing a wholesale slaughter. You're seeing all of these things go on. You're seeing uh, churches that are shrinking. You're seeing churches that perhaps might be lukewarm. And I'm always careful about judging um, the bride of Christ in that way. I want to be as charitable as we can with those people in the pews left. But they're nevertheless, you're seeing people fall away. You're seeing all this go on in your country, and you're listening to podcasts like this, and you're worried. Okay. What does this mean? What What do you say to that person? You say that, you know, that what we've been saying, mm-hmm. that Christ has overcome, Christ will overcome, and even these things which we are facing right now, not in a generic way, not in some nondescript way, these things will come to an end. Yeah, it's you know in hard times, some it's hard to look at the uh, the little plaque on your desk or the Christian calendar like, "For I have plans to prosper you, prosper and not to harm you," and to really feel those verses out. Even though that's a actually a specific promise to Jeremiah. But anyway, yeah, right, uh, right, right, I, right. I, I digress. But you know that that's the kind of thing where you need to be in the whole of Scripture and and looking at what the people of God have gone through what we are promised to go through, but what the end of all of it is. 
So do not despair and do not doubt that the Lord is coming. And really the first step is admitting that the Bible is true and that the God of the Bible is active even today. And not just in a narrow way, but in a broad way. In a narrow way, applying the gospel to those with ears to hear and giving them ears to hear and hearts to believe and eyes to see. That would be the narrow way. But in the broad way of actually ordering all things, and all things are working toward this culminating point in history where the Lord returns in judgment and in victory. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to... What's the... What's the psalm? I'm having trouble remembering it exactly, but uh, then I went into the sanctuary of God and discerned the end of these men. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I discerned, uh, let's see, discerned the, um, if I've always got to, let me, let me, it's Psalm 73, until I enter God's sanctuary, then right. I discern their end. I believe right. that's 7317, if you want to look that up. Okay, yeah, there we go. Okay, this is a great psalm for this kind of thing to talk about this victory which we have in God, even if I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. Because most of the first half of the psalm talks about the, the wicked prospering, how they don't seem to have any troubles, how the righteous always seem to be suffering, how they're going through all of these things. And then when it comes to the turning point in verse 16, it says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And I think that that's something that people are struggling with nowadays. You know, we are trying to figure out how to understand this, and it is something that is wearying. That's what makes us worried. That's what makes us unsure about the future. But then it says, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Mm -hmm. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So in other words, even if it seems like the wicked are prospering, which is kind of the problem that the psalmist is, is struggling with here. Yet he can see that this is not how it's going to go on forever, that they will fall, they will stumble, you know, their foot will slip in due time, as, 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 as Willie always <laughs> likes to say. And uh, then they will meet their end, the judgment which has been reserved for them, because God will not forget his people. Right. So Christ wins. And uh, not a vague Christ, but a but a true Christ. Um, not, not a vague love wins, but the God who is love wins, and that is the triune God persona. You know, and so it's going to be good, fam. It's going to be hard for a while, but don't lose hope. Hang on. Well, Zoan, that is uh, actually going to wrap up season four for us. Yep, we're going to take a short break for a while to kind of recuperate, kind of plan some new directions for season five. I think it's all going to be some good stuff. So please, you know, continue to listen to the catalog. I mean, we've got literally what, like, I think like a week's worth of audio now. It's right. Been a, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're way up, uh, way too many hours. I mean, we, we mean like a week if you listen 24 hours a day. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So go take a look at the back catalog. Um, of course, WordFitly posting. I mean, all of our social media, unless we get the band hammer. But for now, all that will, of course, still be active. So any discussion, any questions, if you need to contact us, uh, you know how to find us. Check us out there. Yeah, check out the back catalog. We'll be back uh, a little bit later in the summer, I would say. Uh, we're not going to set a hard date just yet, but we'll still be working behind the scenes, getting some episodes in the can. Really excited for what we have coming up next. So please, please stay tuned. Uh, Zellin, any final words? I just want to, again, remind everyone, and maybe to use the words of our closing music again, Babylon will fall, and on that day we will rejoice, because God has the victory forever. Amen. Well, we thank you all so much for listening. Word Fitly Nation strong. 
Uh, we are certainly proud to call you uh, listeners and, and proud to, uh, to even know some of you in the capacity that we do. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no candle, neither light of sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book.